they have consistently proven that they can curate a slate of movies that people will pay attention to. And that's what keeps the industry people coming back. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Thursday, January 26th. Today, I'm talking to Matt Bellany, who has just returned from Sundance, where everyone was saying the film festival is officially back after a pandemic slowdown. And Matt also has all the buzz on this year's Oscars, what the nominations say about the state of Hollywood, the inside dope on the frontrunners, and how one unexpected nominee left social media to campaign for her Oscar nod. And later, Teddy Schleifer stops by to discuss his exclusive reporting into the mysterious Democratic network founded by Sam Bankman-Fried's mother and whether it can survive the fall of FTX. We hear about all that and more in today's episode of The Powers That Be. Happy Thursday, everybody. I'm joined today by Matt Bellany, who spent the last few days drinking 3% beers in Utah uh, because, actually, I think they changed that law, Matt. Uh, yeah, he was they at the did. And don't denigrate the whiskey scene in Park City. High West is a great brand. My buddy Shamik got married in Park City, and High West did all the booze at his wedding, um, and I, I drank it. You're right. You're right. Sorry, Utah. Sorry, Utah. <laughs> anyway, you are in Utah, not for a leisurely ski vacation, uh, because you're obviously working hard for Puck. You were there for Sundance. And I want to talk to you, Matt, about Oscar nominations, obviously, and what it says about the industry and where we're at. But what's the buzz at Sundance this year? What, what were your big takeaways? It's definitely back. I mean, there was some question. This is the first in-person festival in three years. And there were a lot of headlines during the pandemic. Like, do we even need Sundance? Like, the, the market was still pretty good for films when it was all virtual. And do people really want to trudge around in the snow and get on shuttles with people that are, you know, infecting you with various viruses? <laughs> and the answer to that is yes, apparently. No, there were, I mean, it's cr amazing how crowded it was. You couldn't find an Uber. You couldn't get a dinner reservation. There were mm -hmm. lines everywhere. I, I think even the festival, the organizers were surprised by how much people have returned this year. For me in politics and campaigns, you would go from Iowa to New Hampshire or like from a convention to another convention or to like a debate from another debate. And it would just be like the same people from like politics and media just migrating on flights to different states and you'd go there and be like, oh, it's the same people I see in LA. Is Sundance like that? Or like what's different about it? It is a little bit. It's this weird mix of the Hollywood people, mostly the independent film people. The major studios for the most part don't attend. You know, you don't see people from Warner Brothers or Universal mm -hmm. there. They're, it's the independent people. So specialty divisions, the streaming companies, Netflix, Apple, you know, the companies like A24 that are putting out the smaller, more adult-oriented movies. Mm -hmm. And yes, it's a lot of those people from LA that you see and New York mixed in with the influencer types who are just going to get the gram and, you know, go to the swag suites. It's the party people who are, you know, young and just want to go where everyone's hanging out. There's like a 50 and 60 something empty nesters who want to have a film trip in a nice resort where they can have, you know, a condo on the ski resort and then also see a movie before their friends back at the club in Delaware. Those kinds of people. And it's a weird mix of, of all of it. And the movies are the one thing that keeps it legit. 
The movies, they have consistently proven that they can curate a slate of movies that people will pay attention to. And that's what keeps the industry people coming back. So before getting the Oscars, like what were some movies that people were talking about? Like I assume the streamers were there to buy some of this stuff too. Yeah. There's the big sale so far is this thriller. It's like a fatal attraction style thriller called fair play Mm -hmm. with uh, Alden Ehrenreich who played Han Solo in the solo redo. Mm -hmm. But that movie sold for about $20 million to Netflix. So that's the success story. There's a couple of others. You know, the, the secret about Sundance that people don't realize is that the documentaries are way better than the narrative films. Mm. And it's always been that way. The hit rate on the narrative films is very small. There's a reason why those movies are at Sundance. It's either an emerging filmmaker or it's a movie that is kind of almost there commercially or a little bit out there or in some cases way out there or it's a star vehicle, but it's not the star playing a role that you're used to used to seeing them in. I saw a movie called cat person, uh-huh. which is based on that New Yorker article, that viral thing that went around a couple of years ago where it's like this whole examination of dating rituals and young people dating. And uh, this guy was kind of creepy, but she was also kind of into him. And then there was a discourse around it. Cause someone came out saying that this was based on their life. And the, the twist on it was that it was starring cousin Greg from succession. <laughs> it playing like a creepy stalker. So those are the kinds of movies that are Sunday. It was pretty good. I liked it. it hasn't sold yet as we're speaking, but uh, there have been deals. So the market is back. The people are back. The kind of buzz is back. I am. I'm not worried about the future of Sundance. All right. I want to ask you um, about the Oscars and the nominations this year. I mean, kind of like Sundance, it feels like we're coming out of the pandemic a little bit this time with this nominations, like in full. I mean, like we've had, theater releases and some people have gone to see some of these movies and not uh top gun and avatar obviously huge smashes that got nominated for best picture all the way down to tar and the fablemans and women talking which according to my last google search did seven hundred and forty two thousand dollars uh at the box it's still coming out it's still expanding they hope to do better Uh, there's a few of those that are just like out of left field that i shouldn't say out of left field the Academy and the other awards groups have liked these movies. It's just the general public that hasn't seen movies like that or like Tar or even totally. the Fablemans. The Spielberg movie is still at about, what, less than $20 million gross? It's, it's kind of amazing. Uh, exactly. But there's a little bit of something for everyone in this uh, group of nominees because, like you said, you've got two billion-dollar grocers. One of them is a $2 billion grocer in Avatar. You've got Elvis, which is at about $300 million worldwide and a lot of especially older people saw Um, and then you've got everything everywhere all at once which is a genuine independent film smash that movie made a hundred million dollars and a lot of people saw that that might not necessarily watch the oscars in a normal year and this might bring them into the fold because there is a real chance that that movie wins best picture you think so oh absolutely i think it's the front runner at this point why is that Most nominations, I think, automatically got 11 nominations. And there was some question going into it whether it might be too weird for older Mm -hmm. voters. You know, it's a pretty bizarre movie. And across the board, in all the categories, did well with the actors. It did well in the the below-the-line technical categories. It got a director nomination for the Daniels, which is a big thing. Usually the Best Picture winner will come out of those five Best Director nominees. You know, there's five Best Director nominees, but there's 10 Best Picture nominees. So you can automatically, usually, eliminate the five that are not in the directing category. And so that gives it a leg up. 
And I just feel like there's no consensus this year. Top Gun did not get a director nomination, so mm-hmm. I think that really hurts it. And, you know, The Fablemans, which is Spielberg and you think might have, you know, an inside track. People aren't loving that movie as much as you might think. It got kind of shut out at the BAFTAs. And they're not directly overlapping, but it does signal that there's not the universal support for Spielberg that there might be. So I think that gives a a, a little bit of a runway there for everything everywhere. The Dark Horse, in my opinion, actually, is this movie, The Banshees of Inishirin. Yeah. Um, It's a searchlight movie. And it's it's like a dark comedy-ish movie. And the one thing it's got going for it, first of all, it got nine nominations, so that shows pretty broad support. And it is the one movie that when you talk to people, nobody hates it. Everyone's like, yeah, that, that, was, that was pretty good, or loved it, voting for it. And mm. when you get to the final round of Oscar voting, it is a preferential ballot, which from politics, you should probably you know what that is. It means that you rank your choices, and then they go through and start eliminating, and then the votes that went to that person get put up to the top. What it's designed to do is to create a consensus. It may not reward the movie that a very loud contingent votes number one. What it's designed to do is include the people that voted it number two and number three so that you get the movie with the broadest amount of support, not necessarily the movie with small and aggressive support. You know, I think everything everywhere all at once is probably a front runner too because it just it feels like in in recent years especially the academy when it comes to the big categories at least like wants to reward movies directors actors or actresses who like say something about identity or oh, the yeah. state of the world or representation sure. and sure. like that that feels like a reason like Belfast didn't win last year because it was a bunch of like white people in Ireland <laughs> and a Van Morrison yeah, soundtrack Yeah there's certainly been an inclusion push at the academy over the past few years and that goes to the voting constituencies as well. I mean, they have added almost 5,000 members in the past five to seven years. I mean, it's just been a gigantic push. Mm -hmm. And many of those new members are international. Mm -hmm. They are people of color. They are younger than the previous Academy membership. You know, it's famously been old white men forever. Mm -hmm. And that Mm -hmm. was reflected in a lot of the choices. And it it still is overwhelmingly white men. I shouldn't, you know, say too much. But now there is a broader constituency and we see it with you know the fact that parasite won best picture in 2020 that is a foreign language film it's a korean film and that would have never won even five years ago Hmm. so last thing i want to ask you just pull back the curtain a little bit on like how people and films get nominated for the ceremony um you wrote about this the actress andrea riseborough was nominated for oh it's my favorite story to leslie which, again, speaking of box office, I, I looked it up, I think it has done like $28,000 total in the box office. How did she get nominated? Because you wrote something really fascinating about this. So, I mean, it's just like politics. When you are running an Oscar campaign, you are trying to appeal to very specific constituencies. And the best actress race is voted on by the actor branch of the Academy. It's the largest branch. I forget how many members, but it's only actors that vote for actors. So what they did is they took it upon themselves. The director, a guy named Michael Morris, his wife is the actress Mary McCormick, who was on The West Wing. You probably Uh know her from there. Uh Great actress. She took it upon herself with some friends to just start calling people. Started calling all their friends, emailing them, and just saying, listen, we have this movie. We're going to do a screening or we'll send you a link. Please watch it. And if you like it, please say something on social media. 
And this has been done in the past. It's not like this was completely new, but they were extremely aggressive and it worked. Actors responded to the film. Andrea Riseborough plays this kind of uh, really down on her luck alcoholic character. It's a very mm-hmm. emotional, personal performance. The movie has like almost no budget. And actors started posting about it. Everybody was in on this. Gwyneth Paltrow, Jennifer Aniston, Mia Farrow, Amy Adams, all of these people, Ed Norton, they started hosting screenings for it. They were posting on Instagram, tweeting about it. And it became this like grassroots campaign where all of a sudden this performance in this movie that literally nobody was talking about. There's all these pundits and there's all these precursor awards like the Globes and the Sags. Nobody was talking about this performance for those awards. And then boom, the Oscar noms come out and she got a nomination and it completely upended what people think of normal campaign tactics. I love that. Matt, thanks so much for joining us. And everyone go listen to the town, Matt's podcast, Puck's other podcast. We did a whole breakdown of the Andrea Riseborough thing. I brought on an expert in Oscar campaigning and we just like went through it all and how it happened. Nice. Love that. Love that. All right, Matt. Thanks so much. Thank you. When we come back, Teddy Schleifer is here to talk about Sam Bankman frieds mom. Welcome back. I'm Ben Landy, here with Teddy Schleifer. Hey, Teddy. Hey, Ben. You've been reporting on all of the fallout from the collapse of FTX and the arrest of Sam Bankman-Fried, which it goes well beyond everything that's been happening with the company, with the bankruptcy, or its customers, or its investors. It also includes the world of politics, where Sam was a major donor, and it also impacts Sam's family. Something that most people following the story wouldn't know, unless they've been reading you, is that Sam's mother is or was a pretty major political player herself. First of all, just to dive into your most recent reporting on this, talk to me about this donor network that Barbara Freed founded, Mind the Gap. Sure. So about two or three years ago, I began hearing about sort of a loosely organized network of donors in Silicon Valley that were coordinating donations in a pretty successful way, totally under the radar, there had been no reporting about it, and it was called Mind the Gap. It was started by this woman, this Stanford professor named Barbara Freed, just an obscure person, you know, leading this network of donors. But, you know, if you weren't in Silicon Valley or in democratic politics, probably wasn't really on your radar. And certainly Sam was not on my radar in, you know, early 2019 when I began hearing about it or when I wrote the first stories about it at my old gig at Recode in, in early 2020. Now, this network, Mind the Gap, as Sam has become more and more wealthy, as um, Barbara has had more and more success, now Mind the Gap is a huge deal. Or maybe it was a huge deal. Maybe past tense is appropriate because what's happened over the last couple of months is as Sam Bankman-Fried, Barbara's son, eldest son, has imploded, there ha- it has wrecked havoc on his own mom's life and and maybe her political organization as well. So Barbara, uh, in late November, we broke that Barbara was stepping down from this organization that she created in her living room at her kitchen table. Um, You know, our story up this week talks about, you know, has some of the initial idea from Barbara and, you know, what she was writing friends about the, uh, the big picture and the big pitch for this back in 2018, I believe. And this dream of hers has been ripped from her thanks to her son, 
Barbara Freed has not been alleged with any wrongdoing. There, she's being investigated by FTX, at least. FTX has said they're looking into Barbara and Joe, her husband's uh, activities. But she's not been accused of any criminal wrongdoing. But she correctly understands that she's a huge distraction and is a huge target. Uh, and mind the gap, her baby is basically a target as well. So she stepped down. And there are tons of questions that I have, that other Democrats have, about whether or not Barbara Freed can outlive Mind the Gap and whether or not Mind the Gap can outlive Barbara Freed. And that's what our story this week sort of explores, uh, is just how screwed she and her political organization have become due to her 30-year-old son. Well, let's get into the origin story, because this is not a small undertaking we're talking about. No. There are plenty of professional class liberals who joined the hashtag resistance in reaction to Donald Trump's victory. But you open this piece by describing this very tangible and sort of familiar scene of the Bankman Freeds holding an election night party. You know, everyone's expecting Hillary Clinton to win. And then, of course, the mood turns sour as the results start coming in and everyone's sort of shuffling out despondent. And Barbara Freed herself has this sort of midlife crisis. But she really pivots her work. I mean, she, she has this inkling of an idea that she wants to get involved in political activism. But she actually created something pretty extraordinary. What was sort of the, the thesis of this pitch that she put forward to people in her circle? Yeah, she's really not that political. She worked on some campaigns in her 20s, but she was not, you know, a political animal. But the idea was, and, and if people outside of Silicon Valley hear this and think this sounds, you know, naive and, and, and maybe even arrogant, lots of Democrats think the same thing. But the idea was, hey, I'm a smart person. Uh, I know a lot about Um, the effective altruism movement, which places a big emphasis on data. I have a lot of connections from Stanford. Um, I know a lot about the law. Maybe I can do something about resisting Trump through political fundraising. So, you know, she writes to her friends in uh, January 2018. This is kind of at the height of that resistance uh, organizing you're pointing out, Ben. She writes, I'm fairly confident I can raise a minimum of one to $2 million in campaign contributions for this purpose. And there is some chance the number could be significantly larger. She then invited a bunch of people over to her house, Democratic consultants and, and data types uh, and other people that she was affiliated with from Stanford. And she writes, you know, I'd be delighted to provide lunch or dinner if we end up meeting around those times and caffeine wherever we meet. So it's sort of, you know, a fun, a fun anecdote that relates um, how someone goes from that election night party to starting this organization, which, you know, obviously, as we now know now, raised much more than the one to two million dollars. I mean, this organization, I don't have the exact uh, totals, but like it could be as much as a half a billion over the last couple of years. Um, You know, I know that they raised 100 million plus in the 2020 cycle. They were trying to raise 200 million uh, in the 2022 cycle. So it's probably in the high hundreds of millions, somewhere between three and five, maybe, if I'm just guessing here. So yeah, she went from an election night party, uh, a person who basically had no political experience and just had, you know, was sad and angry and and agitated to creating, at least before Sam's crisis, to creating one of Silicon Valley's most successful political projects to date. So it's a pretty incredible story. How involved was Sam Bankman-Fried himself in this group, either as a donor or someone who was involved in its operations? That has been the question that I've been asked more than any other by, at least by insiders, right? Because anybody who got money from Sam is under the microscope from the Department of Justice. But I think, and Mind the Gap is included in that. Mind the Gap, as we report in the story, has received outreach from DOJ about their donations from FTX executives. 
But this is not just like some nonprofit or some Democratic campaign that got a Sam check. You know, obviously, it's run by his own mom. And so the question that I've been asked uh, more than any other is, was Sam, you know, involved in setting this up? Uh, how much money of Sam's did they move? You know, you got to remember at the beginning of, of Mind the Gap's existence, Sam Bankman-Fried was not wealthy or not that wealthy. Like, I know people in Democratic politics, especially who were involved with Mind the Gap early on, who didn't even really kind of realize until recently that Sam was Barbara's kid. I don't know if it's because the last Sam's last name is hyphenated, quote unquote, incorrectly, like it's Bankman-Fried when really it should be Freed Bankman. I don't know if that's a factor. But the, the answer to your question is, is I don't know for sure, but Sam has at least been hanging around this organization for a long time. And when Barbara had some people over at her house early on, like she made a comment to someone who related to me that like Sam wrote the algorithm for Mind the Gap, which doesn't really make total sense for a whole host of reasons. But, you know, Barbara was at least claiming Sam was involved. You know, when I've asked Sam about his involvement, he's been kind of cagey. But, you know, he's at the least a, a huge donor to the organization. You know, Mind the Gap told me, and I think what is their first statement to date about the whole thing, that he represented about 2% of Mind the Gap's uh, recommended giving, which sounds small, but it's also, you know, that could be millions of dollars over a pretty big denominator. And I talked with someone, you know, who relayed to me that Sam spent 25% of the amount of money that Mind the Gap raised this cycle. Mind the Gap denies that, but that there, there are at least claims made by people affiliated with Mind the Gap that Sam was a big player in this organization. And, you know, kind of was symbiotic, too. I mean, it, like I know, for instance, that Sam Bankman-Fried got involved and actually bought a Democratic startup that was initially recommended to him by Mind the Gap. So it's not only as if Mind the Gap was benefiting from Sam. Like Sam also benefited from his mom's organization. So certainly we need to, we need to do more reporting to understand the, the precise relationships. But that's kind of why I thought a story laying this out was a public service because if Mind the Gap was funneling hundreds of millions of dollars of Sam Bankman-Fried's money, which is sort of like a conspiracy theory that's taken off on the right, it would certainly behoove you know everyone from DOJ to Joe Biden to know about that. So we try to peel back the onion here. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, you know, you mentioned that Sam's mother, early on at least, was um, making reference to Sam being involved in creating the algorithm for the organization. I mean, who knows whether that's true or not, but it certainly speaks to the fact that there was a point not that long ago when Sam Bankman-Fried himself brought a lot of cachet or at least mystique to this group. I mean, certainly that was a, a part of the fundraising pitch, at least at some point early on. This group has obviously been taking steps more recently to create distance between themselves and Sam. You mentioned that Barbara has stepped down from the group. Do you think that this controversy, this scandal does lasting harm to Mind the Gap or are they going to be able to move past this? Yeah, I mean, for instance, I was struck by the fact that Mind the Gap released the amount of money that Sam had donated. They said under 2% or 2%, which, you know, this is a very privacy-minded organization. that They're telling you the precise amount that, that he donated, I thought, speaks to that point, Ben, about their desire to move to distance themselves from Sam, right? They could have just not shared any number. And presumably, if it was like, you know, 50%, they probably wouldn't have said it, right? Can Mind the Gap survive past this? Look, they have like a professional organization at this point. Like this is not Barbara sitting at her kitchen table, like saying, oh, yes, let's give money to the super PAC. Um, you know, they have professional political operatives who are preparing for 2024. Last week, they sent a memo out to their donors explaining kind of their next steps. 
So I would bet that they do survive in, in some fashion, but the real risk here is reputational, right? I mean, it's not really financial when, when, when it all comes down to it. Barbara is not going to be involved, and there are people who want to get involved because of her, especially like the early kind of Silicon Valley, Stanford type people. Like, no Barbara, does that scare people away? And frankly, like, who knows what happens to Barbara? Like, you know, is, is there a world in which she faces some kind of legal risk? Could any of this backfire and mind the gap? You know, in, in politics, you know, optics matter so much, right? And if like an organization founded by this woman who is ensnared in, in legal controversy or, you know, at least has to spend all of her own money on kind of fighting off Sam's own legal bills and, you know, Barbara Freed has kind of become a conspiracy target for, for elements of the right, as I was referring to a second ago. So I don't really think the primary risk to mind the gap is, wow, we, you know, we used to have Sam money. Now we don't have Sam money. We're screwed because there's always other donors. And, you know, I don't think the risk is Barbara Freed's intellect is, is, is not involved anymore. I mean, there are other smart people at mind the gap who I know who can do this stuff. It's primarily about PR. And it's ironic or, or a little bit meta that I'm talking about this because I'm the person who's written the most about Mind the Gap. And, you know, but the, there's going to be legitimate scrutiny on this organization, way more so than, you know, when I was writing stories uh, about Mind the Gap in 2020. Now there's just Im- immense interest in this organization. So it really comes down to PR and whether or not they can navigate this this question. And, and PR has not been Mind the Gap's strong suit to date, to say the least. Um, so we'll see, we'll see how they do. Yeah. Well, whatever happens, um, it's always the ultimate test of a organization or a movement, whether it's able to survive beyond its initial founders and especially whether it's able to survive a scandal. Teddy, this is a fascinating piece that you wrote. Um, if people want to read it, they should check it out at puck.news. Thanks for being here. You bet. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13, and produced by Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck. Puck.